Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this pre-recorded episode of Truth and Charity, Bishop Rhodes talks about the mission of Catholic school teachers and how prayer and perseverance are virtues all the faithful are called to develop. Then it's on to the National Encuentro Gathering in Texas, the 17th anniversary of 9-11, the Catholic Word of the Week, and much more, including listener-submitted questions. If you would like to ask Bishop a question for a future show, just go to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop and lots been going on. You recently spoke to our teachers for Catholic School Mission Day. How did that go? And, and what do you talk about whenever you're talking to our Catholic teachers? Yeah, you know, um, we have these every year on both sides of the diocese, and it's a great opportunity for all the teachers and the principals and administrators to get together, and we have a whole day program on Catholic identity and mission, Mm -hmm. so that there's a major keynote speaker, I always have mass, and preach the homily, and then there are many workshops that they can choose from. So it's like an in-service day, but it's, it's focused on the Catholicity of the school, uh-huh. and uh, and it's great. I think it's we've had some very good speakers, and it it really gets to the heart of why we have Catholic schools. And our teachers uh, generally really like these mission days. So this year, I um, because of the sex abuse crisis, I did address that in my mm-hmm. homily. And um, there's a, a reading that we used at mass that I I really love. It's from Saint Paul's letter to the Romans. And he says, let love be sincere, hate what is evil, hold on to what is good. Mm. And I was thinking how, in this difficult time, how appropriate that quote is. Certainly, love is the greatest virtue. It's our highest obligation. Abuse of a minor is a grave violation of love. 
it uses a child as an object of sexual gratification and causes terrible emotional and psychological and physical harm. Mm -hmm. And it damages the soul, spiritual harm. So it's evil, obviously. So Paul says, hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. I think there's so much good that our church does, mm -hmm. good that is often overshadowed by the evil of things like sexual abuse. So we must not cease doing good as we fight to eradicate the evil. Mm -hmm. And then St. Paul goes on to say, do not grow slack in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And um, I think that's also really important that, especially during difficult times in the life of the church, or even in our personal lives or our family lives, to not grow slack in zeal, to be fervent in spirit, to continue to serve the Lord. St. Paul says, uh, keeps reading, these are just great uh, maxims, really. Mm -hmm. Rejoice in hope, endure in affliction, persevere in prayer. A lot of people will say to me, Bishop, what, what can we do during this difficult time in the life of the church? I always say first, pray. We have to keep praying. We have to persevere in prayer. This time requires more prayer, not less prayer. Yeah. And really, Paul's imploring the Romans not to give up in the face of hardship. So we can't give up. We have the hope of salvation. And um, St. Paul says, endure in affliction. And it's hard sometimes. You know, some people will lose hope and mm -hmm. leave the church. But it, when there is such affliction, we must fight against that temptation to despair. Because, you know, it's Christ's church. It's not ours. It's Christ's. And the church is holy. Mm -hmm. But it's made up of sinners. And all of us, really, are sinners. And despite the sins of its members, the church remains the body of Christ. And it's through the church that Christ's life is communicated to us, especially through the sacraments. And the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But then we have this filth in the church that we find sometimes, and that's the filth of sin. It's kind of a parable of the weeds and the wheat in everyone and in the church community. We have the weeds of sin. Mm -hmm that are mixed with the good wheat of the gospel until the harvest time, until the end of time. This is just reality. The, yeah. the church has sinful members, and yet the church is holy. We have the weeds and the wheat. So I was really encouraging our teachers when I reflected on these things with them that their mission continues, their mission of teaching and handing on the faith, the church's mission of evangelization. No question it's harmed by when we have scandals or the moral catastrophe of sexual abuse. We have to continue to try to eradicate this evil from our midst, but then we, we still have to continue with the holy mission, including Catholic education. And keeping in mind, our hope and trust is always first and foremost in the Lord not in human beings who are frail. So I'm really grateful, grateful for the fidelity and the perseverance of our teachers and our priests and all those who are serving the church, their commitment to Christ in the church, even though this is a painful time. I've mentioned before in talks 
there have been other times of terrible sin and corruption in the church, including among its clergy and its leaders. And what happened? We had great saints arise mm-hmm. during those times, and genuine reform took place. And this is what we need today. You know, We need holy men and women who are living faithful lives of discipleship. All of us committed to fighting evil and overcoming evil with good and remembering that Jesus is, as he said, as he promised, he's always with us until the end of the age. Yeah. And that importance of that analogy that you used of the wheat and the weeds, we want to remove the weeds, obviously, but in the process, we need to be careful not to damage the good wheat, the the good priests and good bishops that we have. And how do we do that? How do we nurture the, the good and make sure that we're not pulling out the, the wheat with the weeds or, or damaging reputations and their ability to continue to serve. Yeah, you know, that's, that's what is so painful, I think, is sometimes because of the sins and crimes of some, the reputation of all gets harmed. Right. And, um, and that's very hard on priests and bishops, too. And I don't know. I think it's just one of those, it's part of the purification, I guess, that we offer this up because we do need to make penance. Um, and I also think the whole message of divine mercy is really important. We need to implore mm. the mercy of God. When I think of victim survivors, I mean, if we've learned anything in all this is um, – We need to keep them first um, because of the harm that they've suffered. I think that's what God wants us to do because too often in the past, they weren't weren't assisted. It was more of a legal kind of thing, and the church and bishops didn't understand the gravity of this in the sense of the terrible, lasting harm that this— that this that sexual abuse creates. I mean, it was always considered a terrible sin. Mm-hmm. So I think the church has learned from from its mistakes. So the the event is for Catholic school teachers, and this goes all the way from elementary education to middle school and high school. All yes. of the teachers, yeah, together. we bring all the teachers together. So I think it's about five hundred on each, either side of the diocese, and. I mean, we know the sacrifices that our Catholic school teachers make, you know, a lot of times on the, the income side of things, but also just the dedication that they have to the students and and willing to kind of sacrifice their time and and everything for these students that they care for. So yeah, it's, it's great. We have some great teachers really that that devoted their whole lives to, uh, to this mission. All right. Another thing that is coming up that I wanted to chat with you a little bit about is the fifth national encuentro of Hispanic Latino ministry, which is September 20th through 23rd in Texas. And we talked previously about the regional encuentro on the June 27th show, but what happens at the national encuentro? Yeah, this brings representatives from all the dioceses and regions together. So it truly is a national event. We have our own diocesan team that's going to the Encuentro. And it really is an encounter where we have these leaders in Hispanic ministry from all over the country meeting and listening to one another, sharing ideas 
for the future, especially the theme of, of forming missionary disciples, forming our people as missionary disciples. Mm-hmm. We've had this tremendous growth of the Latino population in the United States. So the numbers are so uh, so large that we have to make sure that the particular situation of our Latino brothers and sisters is taken account. And there's many, many different areas. We're looking at vocations from the Latino community. We're looking at their enrollment in Catholic schools, positions of leadership in dioceses and parishes and formation, uh, forming them as leaders. Like here we had 11 permanent deacons that right. I just ordained this past June. And also looking at the challenges issues like immigration, mm-hmm. issues like poverty, and particular challenges for Latino youth where they're kind of living in two cultures mm-hmm. because they they may prefer English to Spanish, mm-hmm. and yet their parents would still be mostly speaking Spanish. And But then the gifts that they have to bring to the bigger church communities, and, and that we need more interaction, more building unity in our parishes between Anglo and Hispanic parishioners and other ethnic groups as well. I, I suppose in some ways you might look at the the division and say, why do we even need the division? You know, people are people and we need to minister to everybody regardless of where they're from and we need to be there for each other. But you mentioned there there are some specific differences. What are what are some things that you're hoping to learn by going down for the Encuentro that that we can kind of adjust things maybe as, as a diocese or, or on a parish level and change the way that we're yeah. reaching out to the community? Well, here in our diocese, we have right now 14 parishes that have Latino or Hispanic ministry. Mm-hmm. And most of those parishes are multicultural. They're not you know, like a national, we only have one parish that's totally Hispanic. Okay. That's Our Lady of Guadalupe in Warsaw. But all the others, there's English and Spanish communities. Sure. But I think when we get together with other uh, people from other dioceses, it just broadens our horizons. We can mm-hmm. get new ideas. We've been working hard, for example, in trying to increase, to get more of our Latino Catholic children to attend Catholic schools. Well, one thing we could say, find out, well, in other areas, how are they doing that? Mm-hmm. And we might learn some uh, some ways. And I think there's things we're doing that others can learn from. Given the, the numbers, percentage of Latino youth, we should have more Latino seminarians than we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we're definitely lagging behind. So I'll be interested when I go to the Encuentro to go to a workshop on fostering vocations among Hispanic youth, if I'm able to. That's one area because, you know, for some reason we're not getting the number that we should access to higher education. That's another thing. I'm going to be giving a little uh, little talk, probably because Notre Dame is here in our diocese, but a little talk about the importance of helping our Latino youth go on to higher education after high school, especially in our Catholic colleges and universities. So I think it's a real benefit, especially, you know, when you think about Florida and Texas and California, I mean, there the, the, the great majority of Catholics are Latino. Sure. So they will be very strong presence at the Encuentro. And I think that is also helpful to us because we don't have that size. Of, we, we have a, probably a third of our Catholics in this diocese. A quarter to a third are probably Hispanic. Okay. But I think we can learn from those places where they have actually a, a, a large majority of mm-hmm. Hispanic parishioners. 
And then I was kind of curious, Latinos have brought uh, some unique traditions to the faith, like uh, Dia de los Muertes, uh, Quinceañeras, and Las Posadas, some of those having direct and some maybe indirect correlation to the faith. Do you see these as, as positive things? Is there any negative that might be with some of the, the cultural things that, that we might be seeing that, um, that might involve superstition or things like that? Yeah, I'd say mostly positive. Mm -hmm. Every now and then there's a few things that creep in that are superstitious, like Santeria and things like that. Okay. But no, overall, the popular devotions, the popular religiosity is beautiful, uh -huh. very much in accord with the gospel and brings out different aspects of the faith. And I would name two from my own experience. One is the devotion to the Blessed Mother mm -hmm. is very strong, especially to Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very healthy devotion, really appreciating and knowing the love and the compassion and the tenderness of Our Lady. The other thing is the devotion to the crucified Christ. If you've ever celebrated Good Friday in a Hispanic community, I mean, it's an all-day affair. Uh -huh. But this identification with the love of Christ on Calvary. And so there's a lot of devotions. Um, but I think it also comes from the experience of suffering that people have had, that they can relate to Jesus in his suffering. And so there's different aspects of our faith that kind of come out in these popular devotions. The whole notion of fiesta, you know, when there's a baptism or, or um, other kind of celebration, there is a, this real desire to, to celebrate with joy with one's family, one's uh -huh. extended family, one's neighborhood, and that's a really positive thing. So I think there's, there's this interchange that happens uh, between the cultures that really build up a wonderful parish life. All right. Well, coming up, I want to talk about the anniversary of 9-11, uh, the Catholic Word of the Week, which is going to be intinction, and we'll get into some questions asked by you, the listener. So that's coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and today is an optional memorial. It is the Feast of the most holy name of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We also have another feast day coming up on Saturday. But does any other saint have a feast day for their name? Jesus. Oh. There's the feast of the holy name of Jesus. Okay. Uh, it's in early January, and the exact date, I think it's January 3rd, but we'd have to double check that. Uh -huh. But it's interesting, these two feasts were on the liturgical calendar up until 1970, after the Second Vatican Council, when the, the new missile came out, uh -huh. these feasts were dropped. Both the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus and the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary. Okay. But Pope John Paul II, when the third edition of the Roman Missal came out in 2003, he reinstituted these feast days. Interesting. And uh, so it was interesting. I think I think the Holy Father, St. John Paul II, of course, his great devotion to Mary, he wanted it back on the calendar. Yeah. Because her name, I mean, deserves special respect, special devotion. Her name is, um, well, the greatness of, of the Mother of God. So the name represents the person. Sure. Do you have any idea how many Marian titles there are? 
I have no idea. There's so many. <laughs> yeah. The Litany of Loretto has, in itself, has dozens of titles, right? Yeah. On the, uh, there's a Litany of the Holy Name of Mary that has 61 in there. Is, is there a difference between official names of Mary or titles of Mary versus ones that are maybe not approved or not official? Well, there's, you know, like if you go through Italy or something, there's all kinds of local titles. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure they've been approved probably by the local bishop, but they're, they're just for a town or okay. something. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's hundreds. Why are there so many different titles of Mary? I think it's just people's love for the Blessed Mother and feeling a special connection to her and wanting to honor her. It's kind of just a beautiful, natural thing that happens. Yeah. Well, I mentioned there's also a feast on Saturday, September 15th, will be the Memorial of Our Lady of Sorrows. Is that in relation to the Seven Sorrows? Yes, and actually it's a big day for Congregation of Holy Cross in our diocese because Our Lady of Sorrows is the patroness of the whole congregation. Okay. The priests, the brothers, and the sisters. So that's their main patronal feast. And it, it falls the day after the exaltation of the Holy Cross, hmm. September 14th, which is a feast. Our Lady of Sorrows is a memorial. So after we celebrate the Holy Cross, the next day we think of Mary, especially at the foot of the cross, mm -hmm. as Our Lady of Sorrows. Although we have all seven sorrows, I think that Mary represented especially at the foot of the cross. Okay. Her biggest sorrow was, was being there and, and witnessing her son's suffering and death. But we think of on that day of, of how Jesus from the cross gave us his mother as our spiritual mother mm -hmm. through St. John. So it's also a beautiful feast uh, when we think about that. I suppose also a strength for those that have to watch another person, a loved one suffer. I mean, so often in life at some point, if not fairly regularly, we have to see somebody that's suffering uh, either at the time of death or going through medical issue or even just kind of some spiritual or mental or you know, relationship struggles. And to be able to, to see that Mary went through that, she went through sorrow of seeing some, another person suffer. And especially a parent losing a child. Yeah. That is probably the most painful thing. And Mary lost her son. So, yes, I think people can really relate to Mary as Our Lady of Sorrows. Yeah. Well, speaking of loss, yesterday was the 17th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, and we were kind of talking about this internally a little bit, and I was kind of curious, do you remember where you were or what you were doing when you found out about the attacks on the Twin Towers? Yes, I was. Uh, I do remember it. Um, I was rector of Mount St. Mary's Seminary, and I was in my office, and I was having individual meetings with seminarians that morning. Uh -huh. So, like fifteen-minute meetings with each with each seminarian. And I remember being interrupted by my secretary, who came in and said, "You know, a plane has hit the World uh, Trade Center tower." So then we all went and watched it on TV, and it was so tragic. Yeah. Do you remember what you were doing, Kyle? Yeah, well, I was at college at the okay. time, and I woke up to my radio alarm. It just That was what I had for my alarm. My radio kicked in, and they were talking about it, 
And I just kind of ignored it thinking that it was the bombing that happened in like, I think it was like a parking garage years before. Mm-hmm. I thought they were just talking about that. I didn't realize it was a big deal until later when I saw it on TV. And yeah. What was it like at the Mount at the time? Was uh, Did you adjust schedules? Were there Was there a lot of... Uh, grieving or things that needed to be addressed? Yes, I do remember, um, of course, we're there on the campus of the university, and we had we had a special um, prayer in the seminary chapel, but then we also joined the whole university mm-hmm. community for, for special prayer that evening. So that was the main thing. I mean, everyone was watching, and there was also a certain uh, caution because we are loca- were located near Camp David and also the underground Pentagon, huh. so and not that far from Washington, D.C. So there was some concern about the plane that was evidently heading towards the U.S. Capitol. Right. So there was a, how would I say, I don't, fear is probably too strong a word, but, but I would say concern. Uh-huh. You know, is this continuing? Is there going to be something near us? Yeah. You know, that was a concern. Do you think that event uh, brought people to faith, that people in light of that tragedy were looking for somewhere to turn and were looking for some hope and and started coming back to church or or, or relying yeah, on their faith? A lot. Remember, there was just an outpouring of people going to church after 9-11 which showed that there still is faith in people's hearts, even people who normally wouldn't go to church. Yeah. There was just a real spike in, in mass attendance and church attendance. So I guess people in, in times of tragedy, of great need, turn to God. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Which almost kind of what we were talking about earlier sounds a little bit the opposite of what might be happening in light of the tragedy in our church right now, that people are, are leaving the church in a time of tragedy when really they need to embrace their faith even more, maybe especially if if they've been hurt. Right, right. You're exactly right. And we'll have to see. We'll have to see how this plays out. But as I said earlier, it's it's through the church that we receive the grace of Christ and and his life. So so we need the church. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I am curious to hear more about and to learn more about is our Catholic word of the week, which is intinction. So can you explain what intinction is? And then I'd like to hear your thoughts on when and if and how it's appropriate or or what your thoughts are on that. Yes. Intinction is one of the ways of distributing Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. And it would be where the minister dips the sacred host into the precious blood and gives communion and says to the recipient the body and blood of Christ and places the host with the precious blood on the tongue. So really, we have three ways of distributing Holy Communion. It could be communion in the hand, you could have communion on the tongue, or you can have intinction, which is this dipping of of the host into the precious blood. Now, what is forbidden, I want to make this clear, is self-intinction. Okay. You, it is not allowed for a communicant, for a person to just take the host, him or herself, and dip it into the precious blood and receive. It would have to be the priest or the minister who would be giving communion. 
So this this method is permitted by okay. the general instruction of the Roman Missal, and it's permitted in the United States. We have norms on distributing Holy Communion under both kinds. We haven't prohibited intinction in our diocese, but we do not encourage it. Okay, and I'll tell you why: the potential to spill mm. some of the precious blood. It also, if you're distributing Holy Communion. By intinction, you're removing from the person the option of receiving communion in the hand. Mm -hmm. You can't give communion under intinction in the hand. But I think the, the danger of spilling some of the precious blood. So really, I'd say there's a preference that we not use intinction. There might be special situations, you know, that we would want have that, but... If it's done, there needs to be a communion plate that's held under. Mm -hmm. So if, if there was a drop of the precious blood that fell, it would fall on the communion plate and not on the floor. Mm -hmm. So I hope this helps. Yeah. Um, Is it more common in other Catholic rites? Well, definitely in the Eastern churches, okay. Eastern Catholic churches, they use a spoon and they dip the, uh, it's not a host, it's a little cube of, of the unleavened bread into the precious blood. And the recipient holds their head back and opens their mouth, and the priest, with the spoon, puts the, the body and blood in the person's mouth. Huh. So that is a kind of intinction. Okay. Yeah. But we don't use a spoon when we're doing it in the Latin rite. It's the, the priest, with his fingers, just dips the host uh -huh. into the precious blood. Have you done that? Yes. But it was a little more common, I would say, back in the 70s, but... Now I'd say it's quite rare. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have any questions for our bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have a question about the USCCB, Bishop's trip to Nigeria, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first question is, thank you for your clear and concise statement regarding the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. We are fortunate to have you as our bishop. Other dioceses, it seems, are not so lucky. Do you have the ability or opportunity to make changes within the USCCB so this nationwide crisis doesn't happen again? You know, I think the USCCB back in 2002, developed the charter mm -hmm. for the protection of, of minors, for the protection of children and young people. And where these have been followed, the, the articles of the charter are followed, which some vast majority of cases, things are going well. The number of abuses reported now are very, very small. And what those that are reported are from years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think the articles of the charter, the norms that we have, the procedures, the policies that we're following are working very, very well. Mm -hmm. The only thing is, and this is I think getting more to answer this question about changes, there wasn't anything in the charter about how to deal with bishops who abused or bishops who covered up or mm -hmm. bishops who didn't deal appropriately with uh, a report of yeah. abuse. 
So that's what we have to work on. And I think there will be this November, I'm sure it's already being worked on now. We have a committee of the USCCB for the protection of young people. We have the National Review Board. But I think the reason there wasn't anything on that is because really it's only the Pope who has authority over bishops. But I think because of what's happened with the McCarrick case, et cetera, we have to do something mm-hmm. so that bishops are also monitored and held accountable for their actions. So I think there will be changes to answer the question, and the USCCB will be implementing these, and they'll need Vatican approval. Is that something that you get involved with? or I am not on that committee. I think a lot of the work will be done on that committee, but I definitely would be talking to brother bishops about it. Uh-huh. I'm going to become the chair of the Committee on Doctrine in November. I don't know if this will come to us. I don't. It's more of a canonical than a doctrinal matter, but I think all the bishops are talking about this, so we all will be. Yeah. And, and you trust the bishops that are on that committee? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the National Review Board, the laity, because if anything, we have to have listen to the laity, especially, you know, it shouldn't be just clerics overseeing clerics. That's part of the problem, clericalism. We have to empower the laity also to have a role in this. We have a diocesan review board. There's also a national review board. And it would be good if they uh, had a little more authority, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you think that'll happen? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of hoping. I think we need that. I really do. Because I think we have to open this up more. Yeah. I would be grateful for more. I mean, I rely on the laity here in our diocese, on their diocesan review board, because of their expertise. Yeah. Especially those who've been involved, in, who are involved in law enforcement, I think can be very helpful to us. Yeah. Another listener said, I have a follow-up question regarding your recent trip to Nigeria. Was the language barrier an issue during the ordination? No, because English is the national language of Nigeria. Okay. Um, But most of the people, their first language is their tribal language. A lot of the Catholics where I was are of the Igbo tribe. So that would be their first language. But when they're very young, and especially in school, everything's in English. Okay. So there might have been some... It'd be a very small number of elderly people mm-hmm. at the ordination who may not have understood much English, but that's, that's I would say, 90-some percent of the population knows English fluently. And I will mention, if people have missed it, it's been up for there for a while, but at todayscatholic.org, there are a bunch of pictures from the trip, from everything from you arriving there and like walking down the street to the ordination mass itself and afterwards. So people should definitely check that out if they haven't seen it yet, todayscatholic.org. Good, good. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we're going to talk about the church teaching on yoga, mortal versus venial sin, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. We're asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. Adam Barton from St. Mary's in Avila asked, what is church teaching on yoga? My sister instructs and wants to have my five-year-old daughter in her class. I'm hesitant on allowing my child to do yoga with her aunt. What are your thoughts? That's a very controversial question. Yeah. I guess I would answer it. I would not allow the child to do to, to yoga. 
Now, having said that, there's no clear teaching, definitive teaching by the magisterium on the issue of yoga. However, what the church distinguishes is physical postures. We know about yoga postures. Can they, obviously in themselves, they're not a problem. They're positions that are used for relaxation, et cetera. But then you have to separate that, and this is the question that people have. Can you separate it from the philosophy or the religion that underlies yoga, which Mm -hmm. is basically Hinduism? Okay. Um, You can have, I would suppose, someone who adopted certain yoga techniques and they don't embrace at all the religion or the philosophy behind it. But there's the question, can you really separate it? Can they be independent? Especially if there's any intention to manipulate forces or energies that are described within a non-Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. So I think for the sake of, especially dealing with a child, I would just not get involved in it. I, I would look at other things. But if someone does get involved in yoga as a Catholic, they need to make sure that they're not adopting the philosophy behind it, that they should be separating the philosophy or the religion from the posture, because otherwise one can be subtly adopting a non-Christian view of things. Mm-hmm. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. 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 Maybe an overall view would be Better safe than sorry. Right. That's what <laughs> but, I would say. Better safe than sorry. Okay. Yeah. Julie Couch left a voicemail that asked, what is the difference between mortal and venial sin? You know, St. John in his uh, first letter wrote that all wrongdoing is sin, mm-hmm. but not all sin is deadly. Okay. So deadly sin is what we call mortal sin. It's sin that is so serious that it destroys our relationship with God, our union with God. We lose sanctifying grace. So that's mortal sin. So in order to be a mortal sin, there's three conditions, three criteria. First, it needs to be the act that's committed must be considered grave or serious matter. Mm -hmm. Grave or serious matter. Second, the sinner must have full knowledge that it's a sin, must know that what he or she is doing is a sin. Mm-hmm. And third, not only the full knowledge, but the person, the sinner gives full consent of the will. Okay. So it has to be, so I'll re- repeat those, serious matter, grave matter, full knowledge that the action is a sin, and third, still willing to do it. Mm-hmm. knowing that it's a serious offense against God. Other sins that, that when it do, a sin a wrongdoing doesn't fit, doesn't have all those three criteria, then it's a venial sin. Uh-huh. They should be confessed also because venial sins weaken our union with God. They don't destroy it like mortal sin. But if one is uh, doing a lot of venial sins, it's easier to fall into a mortal sin. Mm-hmm. I guess then the question would be what is the difference between grave matter and non-grave matter and are we a good judge of this because i think a lot of people we we say you know well i haven't killed anybody right you know i haven't done anything that bad 
Are, are, are we really aware of how grave some of our sins might be? I think that's where our formation of our conscience is important. I think you kind of know inside that this is something very serious. This is really hurting seriously my relationship with God if I do this. Let's say gossip as an example. Obviously, gossip is, is sinful. It can hurt another person's reputation. Or it could be just minor gossip that doesn't really hurt a person's reputation that much. So the seriousness, the gravity, for example, if one commits in gossiping the sin of calumny, where one is lying and saying something terrible about somebody else that's destroying their reputation, that can be a mortal sin. Mm -hmm. That could be a very grave matter. But if it's something very minor, it wouldn't be grave matter sure. and it would be a venial sin. So, yeah, hopefully. There, and, and we can go through all the Ten Commandments and give examples <laughs> of this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like whenever I've had questions about this, there's no list of these are mortal sins and these are venial sins. No, I mean, there's certain things that you could say uh, if all three conditions are there, that it would right. be a mortal sin. Obviously, can you say abortion is a mortal sin? Yes, uh -huh. but only if all three conditions are there. It's obviously grave matter. Right. Killing anyone is grave matter. But did the person know it was a sin? Did the person freely consent with the will to do it anyhow? Mm -hmm. That would be what would make it a mortal sin. Mm -hmm. So I think you could look at things. Obviously, doing harm to someone else's, uh, like I said, reputation or their body, injuring someone, all that could be grave matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Things like missing mass on Sunday, would that be considered? I feel like that might be a, a common one that people might fall into. Yes. I mean, I was always taught growing up that that was grave matter. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, you'd have to have all three conditions. Right, right. Right. All right. Angie Lingfelder from St. Therese Little Flower in South Bend asked, is there a difference between being a sister and a nun? Yeah, we usually use the terms interchangeably, but there actually is a difference. Okay. A nun, technically speaking, is one who lives in a cloister, mm -hmm. who is withdrawn from the world, whereas a religious sister is one who's active in the world, isn't living in a cloister, and is involved in some kind of apostolate. So that's the technical definition, but we often just say nuns, uh -huh. and we don't just mean cloistered nuns. N Probably nobody was taught in school by a nun. Probably not, right, because they wouldn't be allowed to. Right. Right. And we have both in our diocese, right? We have nuns and sisters in the diocese? Yeah, we, we only have one convent of cloistered nuns, uh -huh. and that's, here in, that's in Fort Wayne, the Poor Sisters of St. Clair, which started just a few years ago. And it's a beautiful community of, of sisters who are, who are nuns, who are cloistered, who live a contemplative life uh -huh. withdrawn from the world. And would you be able to list all of the groups of sisters that we have in the diocese? No, we have quite a few <laughs> religious institutes, religious congregations, and we have some major mother houses in our diocese where we have the mother house, for example, of the Sisters of the Holy Cross, and that's we have the uh, provincial mother house of the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration, mm -hmm. the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ, and the Victory Knoll Sisters. Uh -huh. So we have, um, we're very rich in... Uh, 
in, in religious. We also have religious brothers, the yeah. Holy Cross brothers. Is, is that a pretty high population compared to other dioceses? Oh, yeah, especially for our, the size of our diocese yeah. to have this many uh, religious communities having their, their mother houses or their provincial houses here yeah. is unusual. Yeah. What would be the male equivalent? Is it brother and monk? That's right. Yes, okay. exactly. That would be the equivalent of sister and nun. Okay, so brothers would be out in the community. Monks would live a monastic life? They would live a monastic life. Now, some are stricter than others. Okay. Some, the monks never leave the monastery. But then there are some communities where the monks do leave the monastery for various apostolic works. All right. Well, hopefully people learned something today. I know I did. Uh, thank you again, Bishop, for taking your time out of your schedule for this and, and sharing with us and answering our questions. And could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Take care. If you would like to submit a question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.